And this morning, I want to introduce four people to you. Um, they're Christians. They're, they're not with us um, here this morning, um, so I'm not going to get them up to the front to interview them. Um, and I think actually a couple of them would be embarrassed if I got them up to the front because all of them are annoyed with God. In fact, at times they would say they are quite resentful of him. Rachel's been at her local church for three years, and recently she's felt that God has let her down. She'd love to be married. She'd love to have kids. And at times she thinks, if God really cares about me, why am I still single? Andy will take his final year exams uh, at school soon, and already his parents are telling him to spend less time on social media and more time in his books. And yet the more time he spends studying, he feels, can you just please give me a break? It's not as if school is much fun for him. Sure, he has friends, but not really good ones. And he feels no one seems to understand me. And that includes God. Can I really trust him? Alvin and Jing met as undergrads, and they stayed on in the city to work. And then they got married, and they've been involved in various aspects of life at church over these past few years. And then one Friday night, Jing opened up to Alvin and said how she was frustrated with God. And Alvin raised an eyebrow. And Jing said how she had been praying and praying about a difficult colleague at work, and nothing had changed. And Alvin admitted that he often felt that his prayers went no further than the ceiling. Why, when they gave so generously to church, why didn't God bless them? Why did life feel harder than it should be? Maybe you can identify with some of those complaints. Maybe you have others. We all have small questions little niggling uncertainties about God's involvement in our lives or his care of us or his good intentions towards us. Maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. And as you learn more about Christianity, you ask yourself, is this a God that I can trust in? Is he a good God? Well, those kind of thoughts aren't limited to us this morning. God's people in Isaiah's day and after voiced similar charges. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Now, their context was very different to ours. We've just jumped straight into Isaiah chapter 40. But the majority of the previous chapters, chapters 1 to 39, have been full of words of judgment. Woe, woe to my people, says your God, would be a very good summary. God's people have abandoned him. They have rejected his love. They've rejected his ways in government, in business, in society, in family. They've disobeyed him. And as a result, Isaiah has announced God's judgment. 
He told the people that the Babylonians, the superpower of the day, would destroy the life of the nation and deport them to Babylon, to a foreign country. And that's exactly what happened when the nation was exiled in 587 BC. Babylon had invaded the country. Their family and friends were slaughtered. Their nation was in ruins and hundreds of them had, of them had been deported and were now living in a foreign, hostile land. And that had all happened because God had judged the nation for their sin and their rebellion against him. He had repeatedly warned them about their behavior. He had urged them to change, but they had ignored him. And yet despite how they had treated God, the charges uttered against him, God, don't you care? God, don't you know? Where's your power and goodness for me, for us? Well, how did God respond? How does he answer? Well, he redirects our focus from ourselves and back to him. He reveals a grand vision of himself as the Lord of no limits, as the infinite God. And before we conclude that such a God is too great to care, he reminds us that it's because he's so great that he cares. And he invites us and Rachel and Andy and Alvin and Jane to wait on him so we can experience his care of us. So how does he show that he's the infinite God? this Lord of no limits. Well, in verses 12 to 14, he can't be measured. Now, we measure, and we are measured. I love books, and one of my favorite books is called Baby's First Book. In fact, it's so precious that I, I was going to bring it on this trip, but I've decided not to, because, in fact, it's the only book in the world that is all about me. It was written by my mum just after I was born. And it's a book full of measurements. How I was born at 8.33 p.m. on Tuesday the 13th of January 1976. And to save you having to do the measurements, that means I'm 42 years old. <laughs> and how I weighed six pounds, six ounces, or just under three kilograms and that when I was six months old, I was 64 centimeters high. Now, we measure all the time. You know, when do I need to leave in order to be at the service today? Am I a size 12 or a size 14? Am I smarter than him? We do so much measuring, we're unconscious of the fact that we're doing it all the time. And God measures. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Answer, no one, but God has. And yet God's simply not a bigger or better measurer than us. 
He's unmeasurable. Look at verses 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? There is no limit to his wisdom or knowledge. He has no supervisor or teacher or management consultant. He didn't get a committee together to feed in some ideas about the creation of the world. You know, hey, hey God, how about this particular design for a kangaroo? And in verse 28, the Lord is the everlasting God. Time doesn't limit him. The creator of the ends of the earth. Space doesn't limit him. He will not grow tired or weary so that he has to postpone his meetings or cancel his plans so he can have a rest. And his understanding no one can fathom. He never says, I don't know that. Let me get back to you. And verses 15 to 17, he cannot be challenged. He's unchallengeable. I'm not sure that's a word, but he can't be challenged. There's no limit to his sovereign control over the nations. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. Now, that was a big deal in Isaiah's time. Judah, God's people, were surrounded by superpowers, Assyria and Egypt, and they'd been destroyed and exiled by Babylon. Nations with history and power and grandeur. And Isaiah says, verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Not that they have no value, but that they have no stature compared to him. Now, yesterday we saw a demonstration, actually literally outside this building, with huge crowds and people trying to show the power and the influence that they have, trying to make the government do what they wanted to do. Or we see it on our TV screens when the UN General Assembly gets together or the G8 leaders. It's a significant get-together. These are big players who are making big decisions which affect millions of people. And yet to God, they're no more than a drop of milk in a cup of tea. China. The USA the European Union. Or verses 23 and 24. Rulers come and rulers go. Defeated in elections, stepping down because of term limits, or simply just retiring. But there's no limit to God's rule. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them 
and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. But he keeps going. And verses 18 to 20, he can't be invented. He's unique. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Like people then believed that their nations were powerful because their gods were powerful. But look at those idols. They may look magnificent and venerable and mysterious, but there's nothing there but some wood covered in gold and silver. They're human inventions dreamed up by craftsmen, limited by human imagination. And just because God's called God, and there are other gods, religious things in the realm of space, doesn't mean they're all the same. Isaiah says, he's the creator, they're the created. Look at their limitations. They can't move. The best you can hope for is that they don't topple over. Now, those words are very relevant to us in this city. A few days ago, I visited uh, Batu Caves, where outside there is this huge, magnificent gold statue. And lots of people in the city have statues in their homes, or they visit temples and shrines regularly. But the God of Isaiah 40 is not like that. And even if some of us don't do that, we often invest divinity elsewhere. Perhaps we carve out a career for ourselves. We overlay ourselves with the gold of a degree, and then a master's, and then a PhD, perhaps some other qualification. We look around for someone to love us. We select an identity on social media, all to get us meaning and significance and salvation. And then we worry in case it all topples over. But you can't invent the God of Isaiah 40. You can't make him up. He reveals himself. He's unique. As such, he's the Lord of no limits. And then we think to ourselves, or we say to each other, my way is hidden from the Lord. And Isaiah says to us, really? Do you not know his capacity? Have you not heard of his wisdom? Do you think you're invisible to God? So we watch the news headlines each day. We don't know the full story or the eventual outcome of what's going on, but God knows. He knows where this world's heading, where this country's heading. It's his plan. And as individuals, what does Paul tell us about God in Romans chapter 8? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Not a few things, not those things that God's remembered all things were not invisible to him. Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian here today. 
He knows you too. Who are you comparing him to? What idol are you living for? How do they compare to this God? He's the Lord of no limits. He's the infinite God. Donald Trump is the 45th president of the United States. The 26th was a man called Theodore Roosevelt. And during his time in office, he, built the, he began to build the Panama Canal. He put his energies into protecting the environment and social and industrial reform. He even won a Nobel Peace Prize. And Roosevelt was a larger-than-life character. He had some amazing adventures before he became, a, became president. And after he became president, he went on a two-year expedition through the Amazon jungle and almost died. Like, imagine Barack Obama doing that kind of thing today. It's unthinkable. He was always the center of attention. His daughter Alice said of him, Father always wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. And he loved nature and the outdoors. And the naturalist William Beebe used to tell the story of how he and Roosevelt would spend the evening together talking and then they would go outside to the garden and they would look up at the night sky and Roosevelt would say, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It's as large as our Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion stars, each larger than our sun. And then he would grin and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Before we go to bed tonight, Isaiah tells us to, verse 26, lift your eyes on high and see who created these. Under the night sky, we're small, but we're not invisible. But even then, does our creator care? Is he too great to care about you? And the answer is no. It's because he's so great that he cares for you. He's the Lord of unlimited power and strength, and so he brings out the starry host one by one. And his current intention go further than that. He calls forth each of them by name. He knows them individually, and only one of them is called Twinkle. And this God in verses 27, 28, and 31 is called the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And that's God's covenant name, who he's revealed himself to his people. The God who's bonded himself to them, stating, I will be their God, and you will be my people. People like you and me, people he foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified in Christ Jesus. And what does this God of no limits do for his people? Well, he'll not grow tired and weary. And so verses 29 to 31, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 
But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. All of us have physical needs. Sleep, food, water, emotional needs, love, friendship, spiritual needs, protection, salvation, change. Those needs remind us how finite we are of our limits. And we push against those limits. Youth and young men in particular try to, but even they reach the point when they're exhausted and isolated and collapse. But our God is so alive that he has no needs. He has no limits. He's not dependent on anyone or anything outside of himself, including us. And in his boundless grace and love, he gives us strength and increases our power. He supplies what we need, and it doesn't drain him or empty his tank or exhaust him, because he's the God of unlimited strength, of matchless care, of unmeasurable love. And he knows our needs intimately. Not just because he created us, but because he walked among us. Isn't that what we're celebrating at Christmas time? Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human, and so experienced tiredness and hunger. He stumbled while carrying his cross. He thirsted while he hung there. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of what he did for us, we know that the Lord of no limits is for us. Jesus trusted in his heavenly father, and he lived out what Isaiah commands to us in verse 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. We complain, God, what about my cause? When will you do what I want at the time when I want it in the way that I want it? And God simply says to us, put your hope in me. That word hope is sometimes translated wait. It involves trusting God. Waiting is humbling. We're dependent on someone else. And waiting on God is saying day by day, Lord, I trust in you, not myself. I trust your schedule, not mine. Your wisdom, not mine. Your power, not mine. This way, this cause is yours, so I will walk with you. And that's not easy. We know that. As the Christian missionary and writer Elizabeth Elliot used to say, the hardest thing to give is in. And yet remember who we're giving into. And waiting also involves hope in the Lord. For what the Lord of no limits can do in our lives and through our lives to others. Hope that gets us looking forward, not simply around at our present circumstances and wishing they were different. Hope for a salvation that will transform us and our world. Hope that knows that our sufferings and difficulties now are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed.
Isaiah 40 doesn't end in Hollywood. If it did, we would all soar out of here on wings like eagles to some uplifting chorus played by the music group, and then they too would lift up and soar out of here. Instead, it ends in the real world of this week, where Rachel and Andy and Alvin and Jing are learning to wait on God day by day in the joys and struggles of their lives. And when we do the same, the Lord gives us occasional bursts of energy for the exceptional demands of life, but he always gives us the strength to walk and not be faint, to make steady, daily progress in the routine and busyness of each day. Strength supplied by the Lord of no limits. Let's take a moment to reflect on this God of no limits now, perhaps to look again at the passage, perhaps to pray, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning that you are the God of no limits. And yet, Lord, in all of your, your greatness, your majesty, your glory, thank you that you are mindful of us and that you care deeply for us. We're not invisible to you. You know every aspect of our lives. And you love us and you sustain us and you walk with us. Lord, please forgive us for being annoyed and complaining. Help us, Lord, to trust in you, to wait on you, to hope in you, and to walk each day with you this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.